This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Frontline Gaming presents 40K Stat Center with your hosts, Val Heffelfinger and the Falcon. The veteran war gamers enlisted 100 lambs for the slaughter at Slaughterfest 2019. It was summertime and the slaughter was fine when the basement wargamer presented Summer Slaughter. Who would be the first to breach the gates at Game Castle Open? The Uno. And we stab for Pap and Donairs when Gork's Grand Bash rolls into Halifax. Northern Ireland knew not to notify us of Nate Fest, but we found them out anyway. And with the wailing of Thor drifting off into the background, we joining our listeners after a clean, crisp, and perfect intro, if I do say myself. How are you tonight, today, whatever the heck it is, Falcon? I'm doing great. And how are you today, Val? I'm doing just fine. I just want everyone to know that um, the GoXLR has received a firmware update. That's the the streaming, built-for-streaming style mixer that I have. And we are now recording four tracks on different tracks, which means I might get the audio balance correct this this week. I'm just saying. That is fantastic news because as everyone who listens to us knows, our audio has been absolutely awful this entire time. I can't hear it. I honestly don't know what these people are talking about, but there's enough of them who say that I'm way too loud and everything else is too quiet, and I, I guess I'm just deaf or insane. I don't know. I can't, I can't hear it, so I don't know what's up. No, who knows? But you know what? It doesn't really matter. We're producing some pretty great content. Somehow we managed to do that intro on only, what, three, four, six takes. And uh, we're on to another excellent week of Warhammer. Yeah, an outstanding week of Warhammer. I mean, a, a more normal busy week than perhaps the last, which, uh, you know, was was a bit of a slog. But uh, this, this episode shouldn't be an hour as long as we keep this intro down to uh, something reasonable. Yeah, I mean, we had two majors, three GTs. Um, it, yeah, it was far less crazy than uh, what we've apparently come to expect uh, from these uh, avid war gamers. Absolutely, and actually, uh, there's a there's a great episode that Pablo's uh, stitched together from Chapter Tactics. Uh, this week, he had Reese Robbins, uh, the venerable Paul Murphy from Forge the Narrative, my former my former podcast home away from Chapter Tactics. And uh, as well as, uh, as as Sean Morgan came came out, and those guys talked about the history of competitive 40k, and uh, you know what better than two living pieces of history, Paul Murphy and, and Reese Robbins to talk people through it. It's, I've I've listened to about half of it, and it's been a lot of fun so far. I did listen to the whole thing, and it is one of my favorite uh, Chapter Tactics podcasts to date. They did an excellent job. I already let Pablo know um, that opening brought a tear to my eye. It was just really, really good show. Yeah, so still killing it over there on the Chapter Tactics podcast, part of the Frontline Gaming Network, which Pablo plugs every time, and we got to remember to do that. Frontline Gaming Network, of course, you can you can subscribe to us on any of your streaming thingies. Uh, for any kind of podcast app, uh, we're everywhere now, including YouTube. And uh, I've been posting things to our Facebook page, too. You can listen basically anywhere. If you're not listening to us, you've got a problem, man. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, we should also throw out a plug for uh, Capital City Bloodbath, which we're both attending here in just over two weeks now, August uh, 16th through the 18th. They broke 100 players. Um, they're capping it now at 120, I believe. Um, but they're getting, you know, three, four people sign up every day now. Um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be a big one. Capital City Bloodbath, the crown jewel in the uh, major circuit of Canada Definitely, if you can, get out there. The commute from the airport is literally across the street, uh, so uh, probably is a, as far a walk from the gate to uh, the front of the airport as from the airport to the venue. It's fantastic, uh, and I highly recommend it. Come say hi to us. Uh, oh, sure. And there's all kinds of other uh, systems, Batman and AOS and other stuff. I'm not sure what the status is on those, but lots of things to do there, and it's in Ottawa in the summer. It's beautiful. Uh, what else we got? Oh, Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming uh, currently has 20% off of their um, battle mats. What do they call it? Frontline Gaming mats? Is that what they yeah, call whatever. it? Yeah, whatever. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. I People believe... go buy them. I think Reese cares. Okay. And he does listen to us, apparently. Yeah. I was shocked. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> and lastly, we should probably plug Best Coast Pairings. Uh, they do do that thing that lets us do this show. do. do. Uh, they do, do. They provide us with uh, all the events that we can track, um, along with you know a few others. But uh, BCP are definitely the forerunners right now in that in that industry. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, without them, this podcast isn't possible. What an incredible segue! Tournament news is made possible by BestCoastPairings.com. Download the BCP TO app to organize events. For just about any tabletop game system, download the player app to easily find and participate in events from around the world. Around the world. Subscribe to BCP for as little as $5 a month to support the team and unlock additional features. Available for iOS and Android. BestCoastPairings.com. Competitive events. Easier. All eyes were on Temecula this weekend when Slaughterfest 2019 got underway at the Pachanga Resort and Casino. Hosted by the veteran Wargamers Reenlisted podcast, the event managed to crawl into the triple digits, having exactly 100 of their 102 spots show up to attend. In a surprise turn for the VGR team, they only managed to bring up TNA a handful of times over the weekend, and at last count only succeeded in offending about 11 people. Oh, they're getting soft. Let's listen to what uh, the TO, Robert Rotzelk, had to say about the tournament. This was our first annual Slaughterfest. We wanted to run a tournament where competitive players could have a great time, uh, knew what the standards were going to be, and knew um, going into it that it was going to be an event that uh, catered to competitive players, but also had casual players there having a good time as well. This tournament was very special to me. Uh, it was our first major, but more importantly, we were able to pay tribute and honor uh, Jeff Robinson uh, by having a table there for him so people could have a quiet moment. Uh, we put our initials on a stream, and we had a raffle that raised money for uh, to help out with his expenses. Uh, on top of that, it was just um, a tournament that we felt we worked really hard to make sure it was well-run and executed properly with good amount of terrain, plenty of space around the table so that any anybody could play, and you felt like you were on your own little table. Um, also, catering to making sure that food and drinks were affordable for everyone. I think we achieved all of that. 
Okay, I didn't I didn't know if there were more clips. Um, the event was streamed by the team at Frontline Gaming and featured commentary by Adam the Latin Gandalf Solace. There were some excellent games caught on tape. The players were mic'd, and you should be able to check them all out at twitch.tv slash frontlinegaming underscore TV. As Robert noted, uh, the organizers and sponsors put together a beautiful memorial and charity raffle in honor of our friend Jeff Robinson. I won't lie in saying that it brought a tear to my tired eyes. As to the competition itself, after five rounds, the tournament saw three undefeated players stroll to their top tables. Richard Pretty Dick Cozart, also of VGR fame, and Arthur the Tsunami 2, Chaos v. Chaos, would face off against each other on stream, while Alan Destro Hernandez would see himself pared down in the worst way possible, having to take on Brandon Deep Blue Grant. Now we're going to spoil something up front. Brandon did beat Alan in what sounded like a slobber knocker and removed the possibility of having two undefeated players and Alan taking the absolute worst submarine ride to victory, which meant that the game on camera was the one to watch. To make things even better, both Arthur and Pretty Dick were running lists that were far from the norm for chaos builds these days. Let's take a look at what the tsunami brought to play. So Arthur here, he brought a Chaos Space Marines Battalion, Black Legion, with Abaddon the Despoiler, a Exalted Champion with Gorus Vex's Teeth and a Mark of Corn. That's the uh, Chainsword Lord, for those that are wondering. He then had 90 Chaos Cultists, a unit of three Obliterators with no Chaos Mark. He then had a Thousand Suns Battalion with Ariman, a Demon Prince of Zinch, a Sorcerer, an additional 30 cultists, and then a corn demon detachment with a bloodmaster, a unit of 15 bloodletters, and a unit of 20 bloodletters. Now, unfortunately, due to some miscommunication on our parts, we were unable to get Arthur's take on his list and the event itself until just before we recorded. That said, he does briefly go over some of his strategy in an interview with Adam after game six, if you want to catch the VODs. Luckily, despite our incompetence, and a miscommunication amongst the hosts, Arthur was able to send us a great breakdown of his list and the event itself. Slaughterfest was awesome. Uh, it was my first major, and they set a really high bar for other majors to meet. Venue was huge. All the tables had plenty of room to walk around and place your army. I've been to a few of Ray and Rob's event tournaments in the past. I highly recommend them. They also did a touching tribute to Jeff Robinson, whose absence was felt throughout Slaughterfest. I'm sure it wasn't easy to continue putting on the tournament or for the frontline guys to come compete after such an emotional week. Class acts all around. My army works by combining all the elements of the Chaos faction that have been nerfed to hopefully lull my opponents into a false sense of security. It's a list with lots of elements I've used throughout 8th edition, so I'm fairly familiar with their strengths and weaknesses. Defensively, the list is straightforward. Lots of fearless cultists screening characters and denying deep strike. The cultists offer me cheap wounds, come back on any board edge for some needed mobility, and can provide a bit of offense, although not as much as they used to. Offensively, the list is more complex. I have one big combo, which is the Obliterators getting all four marks from the Black Legion strat, plus Fickerling Flames from the Demon Prince for plus one to wound, plus Veterans of the Long War for another plus one to wound, plus the Crimson Crown from the Corn Herald, and then plus reroll for all attacks from Abaddon. The Crimson Crown gives Corn Demons within six inches of the character wearing it an extra attack on a wound roll of six plus, and this works in both melee and shooting. So for four CP, 
I can shoot 18 obliterator shots, rerolling all hits, plus two to wound, extra attacks on four plus, and they shoot twice because of endless cacophony. I explain this combo to all my opponents before every match so that my opponent is aware of, the, of, where I, aware of what I can do and so that you know, they can plan around it. I have another combo uh, with the 30-man close combat cultists. Um, I can pop the Black Legion strat to give them all plus one attack um, if they outnumber enemy opponents within three inches. And then, so then for two CP, um, one for that stratagem and then one for Veterans of Long War, um, I get 91 attacks from the 30-man squad, full rerolls to hit from Abaddon, and then full rerolls to wound from the Exalted Champion, potentially fighting twice if I need to for another three CP. I use this to counter hordes, um, so like orcs, uh, plague bearers, um, things like that. Then outside of that, I have the two obliterator, the two bloodletter bombs, um, mortal wound span from the Thousand Suns characters, um, character sniping psychic powers, and Abaddon going in and smashing face. Uh, the key for me in every match is usually trying to identify how my opponent plans on killing 120 cultists, and then finding the right win condition for me to take advantage of their plan. That can mean emphasizing different aspects of the army against different opponents because I do not have enough CP generally to fuel every tactic that I want to use. Going into the final table, I was pretty much sick to my stomach. Richard's a great player, and his list was the one list I saw in the tournament that I could not figure out how to put up a decent fight against. His bikes were going to be a major problem, and I expected him to kill at least 60 to 90 cultists first round easily, and I wasn't looking forward to getting blasted on stream. I was thinking that maybe we could get a long table deployment, I could do some smart screening and be able to put up a decent counterattack. But then we got frontline assault for deployment, which meant it was a short table with lots of rooms for his anglers to help board. Um, either that, I had, after that, I had only two plans, either go first and be able to get some board control or turtle in a corner and counter punch when he comes in. I ended up going second. Turn one, he does what his list does very well and moves forward and kills almost all my cultists on the board. Um, there's one close combat cultist left for me to use Tide of Traders on. Even though his first turn looked really bad for me, I was lucky that Armon was left on one wound from Perils, and that he charged in his bikes to get them close and to my characters. I brought back the close combat cultist, killed the Lord of Scordon with Abaddon, killed all those bikes, and then tried to hold enough territory to bring in my bloodletters next round. I think the turning point of the game was my turn two and his turn three. I had three chances to put myself in a great position to win the game on my turn two. I tried to kill his epitome that was locking my close combat cultists with pistols, and I even popped veterans of the long war so I'd be wounding on fours. Unfortunately, the epitome survived with just one wound. Um, if she had died, then I could charge my cultists into his demonettes holding an objective for a big point swing. I also tried to warp time Abaddon so he could charge Richard's sole remaining Lord Discordant. That failed. I also tried to kill all the Zangors with my bloodletters, and that failed as well. Um, all that said, I still could have been in a great position if I had remembered my consolidate move with my bloodletters to screen my characters. I didn't do that. Richard capitalized on it, killed my exalted champion, killed a sorcerer. He did a brilliant move of killing Abaddon and then consolidating into my bloodletters to keep my bloodletters from charging and killing the discordant on my turn. And then he also succeeded on the Hail Mary shot of um, trying to move his Demon Prince in to one-shot my Demon Prince in the first round of combat, which he successfully did, and I think was absolutely the right call. Overall, it was a great game, and I uh, hope it was an interesting one for people to watch.
My favorite moment of the tournament was my turn two in round five against Brandon Grant. I had gotten tabled by Brandon the first time I faced him, an experience I'm sure I share with many others. Going into the match, I identified that my obliterators were probably never going to get in range of his tanks, so they were best used as a threatening piece as opposed to doing any real damage. Because of that, I thought my best chance to win was to be able to clear his uh, guardsman screens with my cultists and oblitz so that I can then charge my bloodletters into his backfield and tie up his tanks in close combat. Because of this, I spent the CP to deep strike my herald to give my bloodletters rerolls on their 3 6 charges, which is something I rarely do. I usually keep the Herald on the ground with the Obliterators so that they can get the Crimson Crown Aura. On my turn two, um, Abaddon had just finished killing his Bulgren in the center building and was looking to get into his backfield. I had exposed my Obliterators on turn one, um, basically sacrificing them to his tank commanders in order to kill some guardsmen on his right flank. So then I charged Abaddon out of the building, killed one tank, and consolidated into another. I have my obliterators all make their charges, kill guardsmen, and pin his tanks. So by the end of turn two, I had Bloodletters and Abaddon in his backfield, unable to be targeted because they were in close combat with tanks that couldn't fall back. It was a great feeling to have taken such big risks against an amazing opponent and to have them pay off. After that turn, Brandon looked at me and said, I think you have this, but let's see if I can give you the game of your life. And that absolutely terrified me. He played amazingly well in the last few rounds from a very disadvantageous position, but luckily I was able to pull out the three-point win, which then got me to the final table to face Richard. Meanwhile, Richard brought an absolute mess of a multi-faction chaos list, taking advantage of a series of stratagems, TO rulings, and general shenanigans. Here we go, Richard's Cozart's Slaughterfest winning list. He's got a battalion of mixed heretic Astartes, so... Leading that is Araman, of course, a Demon Prince of Zinch, of course, uh, obviously Thousand Sons. And then he's got uh, two World Eater Chaos Cultus, cultus units, um, both with Mark of Corn. There's 10 of them in each. And then he's got a unit of Thousand Sons Zangors uh, with, uh, with a Brain Horn and Instrument of Chaos. There's 25 of those guys. He's also got an, a Foul Blight spawn from the Death Guard. And then he's uh, got 10. That's right, 10 Black Legion Mark of Slanesh bikers. Uh, two of them have a melted gun. The rest of them have, uh, uh, sorry, three of them have, uh, have uh, a melted gun because there's a combi melta on the champion. The rest of them with their combi bolters. And then in another battalion detachment, this one is Chaos Demons um, aligned with Slanesh. In this, he's got the Contorted Epitome, the Mask of Slanesh, which he calls out as being one of his favorite little pieces of tech. Three units of 10 demonettes and one unit of 30. And then finally rounding it all out, he's got a Supreme Command Detachment. And this one is the Flawless Host, of course. Uh, and uh, it's three Lord Discordants on Hellstalkers. Because that's what they're riding around the battlefield. So there's a lot of stuff going on in here. A lot of units that you don't normally see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the list itself is, is uh, one of those, like quote-unquote Lord Discordant lists, but that big block of 10 bikes is something that you don't see very often. Mm -hmm. um, very deadly, because it puts out a ton of shots, right? Uh, the combi bolters plus the uh, the the bolters that the bikers themselves, ha themselves have and the uh, melt-a-guns, it, it can dish out a ton of damage, especially Marcus Lanesh. He's got those world leaders cultists so that he can uh, get a special deny stratagem off if he needs to. And uh, then those Zangors, which uh, did cause a bit of... Uh, 
I wouldn't say controversy. There were questions online about this uh, because uh, it was ruled at Slaughterfest that you were allowed to take both a Brayhorn and the Instrument of Chaos from the uh, Index, which is technically legal based on Index rules. Uh, a lot of tournament TOs uh, decline you to to take both, uh, indicating that the Brayhorn is just an Instrument of Chaos. Hmm. But they chose at Slaughterfest to allow you to have both, which means when those uh, Zangors deep strike in, um, or when they get um, basically slung, slingshotted by the uh, Demon Prince, um, they have a seven-inch charge off the deep strike instead of a, an eight or a nine. Uh, Richard's got uh, a lot to say about his list here. He's got some really good clips, covers uh, some similar ground, but also calls out a lot about the Slanesh elements in it. So here we go. Here's his list and MVP unit. My list is a little strange. There is a lot of units that most people have probably have never even seen on the table. Um, like the Mask of Slanesh. I mean, I can't remember. I've seen another one on, and even at another tournament. So that that's one of my uh, uh, favorite units to throw down. But I have a pure Slanesh Demon Detachment that has Contort of the Epitome and 50 Demonettes and the Mask, a mixed Heretic Astartes Detachment that has everything ranging from Armon and a Demon Prince with for Zangors, and Dark Matter Crystal shenanigans to Foul Blight Spawn so I can stop you from fighting first when you charge me and the Demonettes always get to fight first so you charge me I get to hit you back automatically that is a massive massive tool against Orcs, Gene Stealer Cult or even opposing Chaos Armies I got bikers in there that are just Black Legion for just going up shooting the hell out of any screens um, and I got the World Eater cultist that no one really wants to be wasting their time shooting a cultist. They don't really realize that, um, like, what's the point of those guys until halfway through their psychic phase when I'm shutting down something on a four up that I really don't need to go off. So, and and in my list, I have too many high priority targets that the stuff that you actually should be worrying about is not the stuff that you're typically shooting at. Um, my list also rounds off with three Lord Discordants that are all flawless hosts. Um, they don't kill that much, surprisingly. They've done a, a bit in my Tau games, but um, really they are just, they're tougher than they look. They're, they're pretty tough to kill, and they are the greatest distraction carnifixes my list has ever had. My favorite unit has to be those Chaos Bikers. Um, there's nine of them, there's three Meltas. So with shooting twice, you're putting out 72 bolter shots and six melter shots with plus one wound from Veterans of Long War, hitting on twos from Prescience, and I make them Black Legion, so I'm re-rolling ones to do that. They are amazing. They've killed so many units in every single one of my games that they, they always just punch so hard that my opponent has to deal with them. And in my army there's other things that they really should be dealing with but now they see how much effort that the bikers can put out that they have to deal with those first so um, they are by far my favorite unit and I'm surprised that no one else uses them there we go very strong advocacy for chaos bikers yeah for sure like I said like it puts out a, a ton of DACA and um, yeah this is really the first time we've seen them with any kind of major success I have seen them a few times in lists that have kind of been middle or bottom of the barrel, um, but uh, 
never with such great success. So good on Richard for for piloting this uh, to the top table. Yeah, because this was not a this is not a you know uh, a gimme event. This was actually I really want to call it out because the TO kind of undersold it. I don't know if you saw any pictures of it, but man, this place was beautiful. It was a huge convention hall, uh, really well spaced out. It looked like the uh, the the train was 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 well appointed. Just a fantastic event. Okay. Uh, both players felt that uh, this was a matchup that would largely be determined by who went first, as the lists were absolute meat grinders with high alpha strike potential. The game only made it to turn four, as there was a lot of thought taken by both players on close combat positioning and zoning coverage, but even then, there was a lot of death on both sides of the table. Let's hear what Richard had to say. My favorite in-game moment has to be when um, game six, playing against Arthur 2, I got first turn and I killed 99 cultists in in one turn and unfortunately I just I target prioritized wrong with the Lord Discordant and auto cannon first before I shot all the bolters on my chaos space free bikes and that one cultist was all that was left and he was able to tie the traders back but the amount of pressure and force I was able to put on the front of that game um, made me think that I, I can do this. I got this chance. I, I, I can win this this major. Um, and I was right. I, it, was, it was too much force at, all at once, and uh, his army couldn't fully recover towards the end, and I was able to win it. So that, that, was, my, uh, that was my favorite in-game moment. And then just a shout-out to... Um, Slaughterfest, uh, that was the an amazing event, and all six of my opponents, I didn't have a single bad game. I had a couple tough ones, some really, really scary close call ones, um, but I, I had six great opponents, and I couldn't have had a better weekend, and I can't wait for Slaughterfest next year. So, uh, thank you very much. Big congratulations to Pretty Dick for getting his big boy pants on and finally pulling off his first major victory after bridesmaiding for so long. Give me some of that bump. Tournament news. Hey guys, this is Nick Nanavati from Knights of the Game Table Pro, where I teach you how to become a better 40K player. And you're listening to 40K Stat Center. From Slaughterfest to the Summer Slaughter, Warhammer players are nothing if not consistent and unimaginative in their naming conventions. The Basement Wargamers presented Summer Slaughter over the weekend, a 64-person ITC major event in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, using the Nova Mission Pack. TJ Lanigan gave us the lowdown. So over the weekend, I had the opportunity to go to the BWG Summer Slaughter event. It was 64 players and gamer Haven, which was one of the best GTs I've been to in a while as far as like comfortability and like options and what was going on there. Uh, The terrain was great. Uh, Uniform over all the tables, which I like a lot. Uh, They had their own built-in restaurant. The chairs were nice and accommodating. Uh, They were great on prize support some of the best prize support i've gotten all year it was a lot of fun uh, i'd like to thank sam lucci for running the event uh he was the head to he did a fantastic job would definitely come again next year and everybody else should definitely uh head out there if they can so I a number of itc east coast names showed up uh, including nick donabati running his first attempt at tau I've been playing Gene Sealer Cult for the past few months, getting ready for ETC. I've taken to the four majors in the past uh, couple months since I started. And then coming up, I have ESC and ETC in the next two weeks, and then Nova shortly thereafter. 
Um, so I didn't really want to just take Gene Steer Cult again, although I could probably have used the practice. Um, I just wanted something different and a change of pace. So I decided to YOLO bring a Tau army. Um, Tau something I've kind of never really experimented with, so it was a bit of a learning process for me as well. And I kind of just wanted to challenge myself and see what I could do with an army I've literally never played before. Uh, this GT wasn't going to be large enough, even though, it was, even though it was a major, to really impact my ITC score. So I figured, what's the worst that happens if I scrub out and don't win? So, um, yeah, that's pretty much why I brought Tau. Let's take a look at what the Brown Magic brought in his bag of tricks. Sure. So uh, Nick Dadavati brought a Tau Battalion with a Cold Star running three missile pods, an ATS, and two shield drones. He also had a Cadre Fireblade with an additional two shield drones. Dark Strider, three five-man uh, strike squads, two of them with marker lights, all three running at two shield drones. He then had a Tau Outrider with another Cold Star Commander with three missile pods, ATS, and two shield drones, and a second Cadre Fireblade also with two shield drones. He then had three units, uh, two of seven shield drones, one of six. And finally, he had a Tau Vanguard with another Cold Star with three missile pods, ATS, and two shield drones, a third Fireblade with two shield drones, and three Riptides, each with heavy burst cannons and SMS. Two ran ATS and target lock. The other ran ATS and velocity tracker. And he topped it all off with three fire sight marksmen. Not too shabby. I love how how with with Tau builds, everything old is new again. So those um those missile commanders, you saw those last summer a little bit. I think the Russian guy, uh, the the best performing Tau list at the ATC last year ran uh, missile pod commanders. He was like the only guy doing it there, and it never got picked up on. Um, as well as broadsides, he was running solo broadsides. It was very strange. But anyway, I just I, a lot of this stuff is all things that have been tried in the past and uh, just sort of get recycled into new lists as things go round and round. For sure, and I really like the uh, the two shield drone tags that we're starting to see more and mo more of um, with um, Richard Siegler's lists and uh, Richard Martin, who I believe kind of took it from Siegler as well. Um, People aren't afraid anymore of the, uh, you know, kill, kill more scenario uh, that the uh, shield drones uh, used to cause. They're able to, uh, you know, properly remove uh, wounds here and there when they need to. And, uh, yeah, it seems to be working out for people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're going to cut to some clips, actually, of Nick talking about this list. Obviously, I'm sure it's well documented on his various channels, uh, nights at the game table, I do believe. Uh, but he actually talks about the drones. In this case, it was a Nova format mission, and well, uh, well he talks a little list, bit about really why that makes a difference. I wanted to make sure I had options to play around the giant Nova Ls, and I wanted to use and abuse the Nova mission intricacies as much as possible. So I took a ludicrous amount of two-man drone units. I think I had nine units of two shield drones. Um, I figured the two mans would be really useful for screening out Gene Steeler Cult or other deep striking things without really committing anything. Um, and it'd be a real inefficient way for firepower to kill them, especially against like knights or opposing tower, things like that, where you have to shoot an entire Avenger Gatling cannon or a burst heavy burst cannon at a two-man drone unit. That's got to feel pretty bad. Um, Aside from that, I took uh, three Cold Stars with Missile Pods, three Missile Pods and an ATS. They were shockingly good. Uh, I've always been a big fan of Missile Pod Commanders. I think they're highly underrated, uh, but they really did shine, and I was really proud of those guys. So those are probably the most interesting parts of my list as far as Tau goes. 
As far as any singular MVP unit, I don't really think I have one. Um, my army is pretty much just three commanders, three riptides, and three drones. So all three of those units were, were like integral to my success. Uh, my seven marker-like characters, they, they weren't spectacular, but they did their job. They did what they need to. Fire warriors are utter garbage, although they did get the last kill on Ganyo's Knight, the last wound. So I'm proud of those guys. Um, I think the army just functioned as a whole. There's no singular unit that really shines. Um, I guess if I had to pick one, I really liked my Cold Star. It was three missiles and an ATS. Um, about half as expensive as a Riptide. doesn't shoot nearly as much, but it's such a reliable and consistent kind of damage that it's something that the army really needs. Nick would go 4-1, taking third place with his only loss coming to the eventual event winner. Now, our little birds did tell us that Nick wasn't very happy with his fish goat man and made sure everyone around him knew it, though not because it did not perform. And lucky for him, it didn't because it sounds like he would have been stuck holding the bag I guess one of the for the greater good. Uh, that happened to me this Here's weekend Nick's was final basically thoughts. all weekend I whined about how I wasn't enjoying playing Tau. I mean, it wasn't bad. My games were fine. My opponents are fantastic. They were great sports all across the board. But... Every game, I, I ran to the middle of the table, I set up camp, and I shot people. And it worked or it didn't. It worked more often than not as well. Um, but that's just not the way I like to play 40k. I like a more dynamic, maneuverable army that can assault stuff, use tricks, all that stuff that Tau just doesn't do. So whining about playing Tau and how I was never going to do it again, it's just not for me, not my style. I ended up getting third place. Luckily, Ganyo, who won first, also won best overall. So they gave him that. TJ, who got second, got bumped up to first. I, who won third, got bumped up to second. And uh, Louis Stolberg, who got fourth, bumped up to third. And the prize for third place, which I dodged, was a fully painted tower, or a fully boxed tower. Wow. Winning an entire Tau army. That sounds terrible. I hope Lewis can handle carrying that awful load around his neck. Heavy weighs the mantle, you know? <laughs> anyway, going into round five, four players were undefeated at the tournament. Andrew, the poltergeist Ganyo, with his knights, and obviously overcosted Custody's grav tanks. Mm -hmm. Scott Horace, with his knights and imperial guard. Chad Layton, repping the Necrons. And TJ Lanigan, with his terribly boring and seen oft too many times on this podcast, Demons with Thousand Sons and Death Guard. TJ and Andrew would end up coming out on top in their respective matches, and Andrew would take the event due to his victory points. We've looked at TJ's list a number of times, and you can randomly click on essentially any event on 40kstats.com to see it, or check out BCP. TJ did give us the pleasure of breaking down both his most difficult game and the finals. Uh, most interesting game of the weekend um, was against Carl and his Slanesh faction list. Uh, he ran a really interesting chaos list. Uh, you know, nine Slanesh bikers with three obliterators and uh, a possessed star, which is not something that you usually see on any of the tables. Uh, we managed to both make it to the 4-0 bracket and have to play each other at the uh, first round of the second day. So that was quite a um, good showing of a game for um, his list. Uh, 
did a great job, played it very tactically. Had some unfortunate dice rolls um, that just caused the game to kind of slide in my favor. But other than that, I mean, he played it very, very well. Um, it was definitely something that uh, kind of made my head turn a little bit, kind of looking a little more into some things that he ran in his list. So kudos to him. Uh, last round of the day uh, was probably my uh, toughest round, uh, and it was against uh, Chad Layton and his Necrons. Uh, he runs a very, well, um, modernized Necron list. Uh, you know, mech is the way that a lot of armies have started to go, and that is definitely a heavy, heavy mech army he's running. You know, three Doomsday Arcs. Um, you know, with uh, three of the flyers, and he's running some tomb blades for some anti-horde protection. So it was very uh, crucial that I deal with these flyers as quick as humanly possible. Um, so turn one, I almost killed one. Uh, I got a little unlucky with uh, my last two spells; they just didn't go off. So uh, he was able to do the pick a point on the map within 24 inches of all three of the flyers, and basically uh, try to do 3d3 mortal wounds to everything, which is really rough. Uh, thankfully, around two, I was able to kill all three of them, so definitely helped out. Maybe we'll finally see that drastic change to TJ's list. And now for something completely different, let's take a second to look at what Andrew Gagno ran. Andrew Gagno, he ran a super heavy detachment featuring household crash knights, which were uh, comprised of a knight crusader with the Avenger Gatling cannon and rapid fire battle cannon, of course, and two armager warglaves. Spearhead detachment of Adeptus Custodes featuring a shield captain on Don Eagle jet bike and three Caladius grav tanks and a battalion detachment of Vostroyan Astra Militarum with a tank commander featuring the relic battle cannon because it was an Emperor's Fist tank company, a tank commander uh, who was the warlord and four 10 dude units of infantry squads. Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, similar list to what we've been seeing out of uh, the UK the last say three or four months. Mm -hmm. uh, really, the big change here is the Armager Warglaves adding those in, um, which would get um, you access to the Crast um, uh, tactic, the rerolling hits in close combat. Yeah, um, he does lose out on the minus one to hit on the Caladius Grav tanks and uh, the second tank commander that most of those lists over there run. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, it's a it's a pretty solid. Uh, Leaf blower. Absolutely. And I mean, Armager Warglaves, I mean, came in that box set. People probably have them kicking around and yeah. they seem like fun. They do, but uh, anyone I've ever seen play them up until now has uh, basically said they're utter garbage. So really glad to see that they someone actually made them work. Absolutely. And who other than one Andrew Gagno? Some say the nicest man in 40K as we're recording, of course. Uh, the audience doesn't know this. But he hasn't gotten back to us. Now, we tried desperately to get some insight from this quote-unquote nicest guy in 40K on his list and the event in general. But he ghosted Val harder than friggin' Casper. It was like the aftermath of a bad Tinder date with Val just DMing the guy over and over to no avail. Luckily for us, we were also able to reach Ganyo's opponent in the finals, Scott Horace, in case the ghost with the most did let us down. And he was able to provide us insight on just how it all went down from his point of view. Hi, Val. Thanks for having me. I wouldn't say that I have a extremely unique or special approach to this list. It's just a generally decent all-around, good all-arounder. 
Um, it's got a melee threat, a base of fire, and board control uh, through the guardsmen. Um, I really chose the knights for the melee threat because I appreciated that um, they could present a long-range melee threat. Uh, the Gallant can charge targets up to uh, 32 inches away with Landstrider if I need him to. And then the Warglaives typically follow up close after that. Um, then that's followed by some board control for Guardsmen and a base of fire off of the Tank Commanders and Manticores. Uh, my MVP for the weekend is definitely my Knight Gallant. I recently switched the Knight's attachment back in after running Bulgrins for a while. I felt like the Knights give me the initiative um, in, in the game. Um, way more than the Bulgrins. Uh, on the first four games, I was able to more or less decide to turn one charge with the Gallant, um, and he killed some very, very critical things on the uh, top of the first turn in my first four games. Uh, the one that really, really sticks out to me there was on game three, uh, he ended up throwing smasher guns into a relic shock attack gun and killing it on the top of turn one before it had the ability to fire. Shock attack guns are awful for tank commanders um, because they have no invuln and they do tremendous amounts of damage to them. So that would have been huge if it was able to fire. So highlights from top table. Uh, I was looking at Andrew's list before the game and thinking, man, this thing outmaneuvers me, outshoots me, and punches just about as well. And it's difficult for me to engage uh, him in melee with the Caladius Grav tanks. Um, I felt like I needed a, a pretty big misplay from, from Andrew to uh, really get in the game. Uh, he never gave me that. Um, so uh, he was able to put me away pretty methodically. Uh, one, one funny thing that stands out is I was playing really cagey with the Gallant, trying to hide him between the L's. Uh, either on turn two or three, the Crass Crusader lined up a shot on the Gallant and did 23 wounds uh, through to it with Huntsman's Mark six of which came from a heavy stubber. So two failed heavy stubber saves for six damage. So that was pretty awesome. Wait a second. This just in. Andrew Gagno is actually a saint and just really busy and away on business. Here he is with his take on his list and his games. Hey, Val. Andrew Gagno with you here. Uh, thank you guys for including me in this uh, to run through the questions you guys had had for me. Uh, this last week in the GT, uh, what was special about my list and the approach that I, that I kind of took to it was I haven't been playing much this last year, so I wanted something probably a little more straightforward that would just reward general good decision-making and play and also approach the meta, which I think is shifting to a lot less body-heavy um, with lots of mobile firepower that was pretty strong um, and gives benefit from good rough strategy without all the finesse that, that I might have had in past years when I was potentially playing a little more. Um, so it has uh, several threat elements that can't just be alpha struck off the board, for instance, if you're going second, because that can be really big right now with the flyer match and a few others. So I think that's uh, what is special about my approach to the list and probably not too special from what a lot of people are doing right now. So I would say my MVP unit, and everyone's going to think I'm going to say the Caladius. They were amazing. They were long range. They were mobile. They had all of that going for them. Uh, but I'd probably say one of my favorite uh, main units was actually, oddly enough, the Warglaive. Um, it almost had the character rule because no one wanted to waste time targeting it. Uh, it was really useful for flanking. Um, people kind of left them alone, and then with the crash trait, rerolling hits, they were actually pretty nasty in combat. Um, I actually spent a lot of time talking with Nick Nanavati, 
who does a coaching service after the event about it, and he was interested in it as well. So uh, I would say the top table featured four of them, so they can't be all bad. Uh, and I know he had some interest in doing a segment on it in his coaching sessions if there was enough interest. So if you guys like him, reach out to him. Uh, I think he'll be interested to hear from you. So I would say the highlight of the top table match was, one, there being four Warglaves on the table to begin with. Uh, two, uh, my opponent Scott Horace was a, was a really great guy, had a, had a very fun game with him. Um, I think one thing that was most telling is that, you know, our list may have been different, but they both had a very same, similar approach. They had enough bodies, uh, you know, 40 to 60 between us that would uh, let you play against the GSC match, but they were really based on fairly durable, consistent, long-range firepower to kind of move around in the background, pick your angles, and, and pick people apart. And I think that was kind of the, the telling scenario that both of us made it to the finals like that. I really would have liked to see how it went up against, uh, against TJ, who also was undefeated. Um, but the turning point in the final match was probably just getting first and the Caladius outranging him and kind of outclassing the battle tanks. Uh, so it was kind of the, the same approach, but with a little bit superior unit. Uh, I think the main thing I'd like to highlight is a big thank you to uh, Basement Wargamers, uh, especially Sam Lucidi uh, from, from Beast Coast, who kind of put on this event for all of us. Um, I'm not positive if it was the first year. I know it's the first year that I'd heard about it, and I'd went to this one that, that Sam had run, and I had an absolute blast. It was an amazing store. I mean, they fit uh, 64, I want to say, 40K players and an AOS event in the store without feeling crowded with great terrain in a gaming store that also had food and was well run and on time so hats off to those guys um i had a blast it was great to get out and see friends even if i kind of last minute audibled into it so uh if you guys have a chance check it out in future years it was uh it was a really really great time there you have it grats to andrew on the win let's do one of them dare bumps tournament news I'm Lawrence Baker. And this is the B-Bone from Tabletop Tactics. You're listening to 40K Stat Center. And that takes us to the GK Open, the UNO, held at the venerable Game Castle Game Store, the White Castle of Hobby Venues, where both were once home to greatness, White Castle being in its namesake movies and Game Castle being the BAO. They are now wretched hives of scum and villainy, one preyed upon by the likes of one of our next event's TOs, Anthony DeMore, and the other by in and out Short-time listeners of the show may remember Anthony from last week's podcast, where he waxed poetic about Primaris death watch lists, and then savagely tore down the borderline angelic Paul McKelvey from Best Coast Pairings. I'm still recovering from that. Please note, we do not condone any throwing of shade on our podcast unless it is our own as the Falcon is an absolute diva and cannot help himself. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, you're not wrong. Now, luckily, John Fuerelm, a far more respectable member of the 40K community, who would never slander the name of one Mr. McKelvey, and the co-TO of the GK Open, did give us his take on the event. This last weekend in July in the past was the weekend where the Bay Area Open was being held. And as you may know, the Bay Area Open was moved to the Kublai Khan Gaming Convention at the beginning of summer. That's to give it more space to expand. In fact, this year, Reese and Frankie approach, approached me last October and asked if I would run the 40K, or excuse me, the Age of Sigmar GT to complement the 40K GT for the Bay Area Open. Then about six months ago, Seth Amston of Game Castle approached me and asked if I would run 
a tournament to replace the Bay Area Open, and that is how the Game Castle Open was born. So this year at the Game Castle Open, the Uno, as we called it, and they say that nature hates a vacuum. So when the Bay Area Open was moved, there's actually several GTs that tried to fill this same weekend. In particular, Slaughterfest down in Bakersfield, I believe, was being held this weekend, and they did get themselves on the calendar and start advertising a little bit before we got the GK open up and ready to go. Um, Because of that, a lot of the Southern California players that have frequently traveled up to the Bay Area for tournaments actually went to Slaughterfest. And so this time, our meta was mostly local Northern California players, as well as a few Sacramento players and some Northern Cal- uh, far Northern California players north of the Bay Area. Uh, I started Firehead Productions about three years ago to handle uh, tournaments in our local scene. There was basically nobody uh, really running uh, Warhammer tournaments here in the greater Bay Area in Northern California. There were certainly plenty of tournaments out in the Sacramento area and some in the East Bay and the Oakland area. But in the South Bay here and in the San Francisco Peninsula, there were no real tournaments being held. So I started up Firehead Productions. Uh, We do 40K and Age of Sigmar tournaments. We have about 75 RTTs. And the GK Open was our sixth GT under Firehead Productions. And so uh, mostly Northern California, though we are available to run tournaments wherever, whenever. Just uh, give me a contact through Facebook. Thank you very much, and good day. As John mentioned, the UNO was a 41-player ITC GT in California, an excellent feat when you consider that Slaughterfest occurred only a short five-hour ski trip away and held 100. Now, while White Castle had Harold and Kumar as its unlikely heroes, Game Castle had Jonathan Blake and Bridger Hahn. They had some great things to say about the UNO. Well, the event was for Jeff. It was amazing to see the community come together not just players in the tournament but the crowd full of friends that came Uh, jeff was and still is a huge part of the local community here in the bay area and someone who i look up to so i was extremely proud to be part of the event Uh, let's see for this event there was mostly a lot of middle table heroes here um, as there was the slaughter fest going on at the same time in California. So just keep that in mind. Um, but I think everyone had a great time. All my games were amazingly fun. I think the TOs were actually disappointed that they didn't get to yellow card anyone. This was Game Castle's first year running a big tournament like this. Um, so this was our the first Game Castle Open, uh, and everybody had a blast. Uh, we had pretty good turnout. It was like 41 players. And uh, from what I hear, they're looking to do this every year. Uh, and they're looking to grow it to maybe even a major or a convention or something. Um, but it was really fun to see my my buddy John Blake uh, take first uh, alongside me, uh, undefeated. And uh, we saw him put on the custodian cap, which was <laughs> pretty funny. Uh, and his uh, game one, he beat Brian Pullen in like a buzzer beater down to the wire game. That was That was cool to hear about. Now, once again, please note... That we are not saying that Jonathan or Bridger were high at the event or that they went on a drug-fueled weekend of debauchery with Neil Patrick Harris, despite what pictures of the event would have you believe. This is just a series of terrible comparisons. 
Game Castle, I hear, is an excellent venue and does not smell anywhere near as much of grease and despair as White Castle does. Both players would go undefeated at the event, with Jonathan winning Best General based on victory points. Let's see what old Johnny Blake brought to the GK Open. We have a battalion detachment of Drukhari. Of course, the Prophets of Flesh were in the house. A homunculus and a homunculus and Urian Rakarth. Those rascals were leading the battalion. Next, we had three units of five racks. And then two big bad units of grotesques. I'm told approximately nine of them in each. Then he had a spearhead detachment. This one was Craft Worlds, led by a, a Warlock Skyrunner and featuring three fire prisms in a heavy support in the heavy support slots, one of them carrying the crystal targeting matrix. Finally, rounding it all out, we had an air wing detachment, also of the Eldari Craft Worlds Persuasion. Um Talk, of course, and it was three Crimson Hunter Exarchs with two star cannons apiece for an exact 2,000 points. What do you think about that, Falcon? Well, this list is everything that I hate to see about the game. It involves uh, Eldar and Dark Eldar, and that's really all it needs to make me just absolutely furious. I do enjoy, you know, I mean, it's not just, you know, Air Dari. It's, it's got at least some fun, uh, you know, I really do like the Prophets of Flesh stuff. I think they're really, really... Uh, beat sticky and uh, really hard to dig out of stuff and I always have a lot of fun playing against it and it's not just a dozen planes that's nice oh absolutely I mean uh, the fact that he is going with the you know 18 grotesques is um, I wouldn't call it unique but it is uh, it is an excellent list don't get me wrong I just really hate everything with pointy ears that's fair I mean that is completely fair all right approach to my lists uh, I guess I try to look for lose-lose situations for my opponent if you're shooting at grotesques, then you're leaving my firepower on the board, and I try to take your tools away to deal with me. If you're shooting at craft world vehicles, then you're going to get run over and lose map control. Uh, I try to capitalize on whatever decision my opponent makes. Usually, shooting at either of those things doesn't feel good. Uh, game pace is also a big factor in my matchups. I tend to deny a lot of points, despite how terrible it is for our tournament score. Uh, if I play Tau or maybe another gun line, I need to pick up my opponent early game while staying safe, tying up the score, and then have big rounds towards the end. This allows me to kind of win bad matchups uh, by running onto objectives with units that are hard to kill in the later stages of the game. Uh, if I play a horde army like Tyranids or Chaos, I'm usually trying to get into combat as soon as possible, get in as many phases as possible, um, just to get through uh, all those wounds and limit their control. MVP unit this weekend is grotesque for sure. They're definitely the unit people don't know how to really deal with. I also make a lot of 4-up invulns. They're amazingly resilient. Um, let's see, without even mentioning the stat line, it's the amount of wounds that get lost and them not carrying over after a model dies that makes them the best. They also almost never lose combat. Nine grotesques, 45 attacks, re-rolling wounds will finish off a knight pretty easily. Meanwhile, Bridger came to Game Castle with a list similar to the one he has brought to numerous tournaments in the last few months, including the BAO. Now Bridger here, he brought a Custodes Outrider detachment with a shield captain on Don Eagle Jetbike, a Palace Grav attack tank, two units of four Virtus Praetors, and then a Spearhead detachment, Carrying on that Pokeball Assassin, 
Constantine Valdor, a.k.a. Trajan Valoris, a.k.a. the greatest custodia of all time. A Vexillus Praetor with a Storm Shield and Vexilla Magnifica. And three Caladius Grav Tanks. Now that looks like a good old time. It does. I really enjoy uh, Bridger's List. It was. It did him very well at BAO. Um, I believe his only loss was to Jeff and Control Robbins, Robinson um, in what was uh, what at least Bridger said uh, was a game that was going to go down to who went first because they both were running that triple Caladius goodness. Um, it's good to see that he performed so well here at Game Castle. I'm always excited when my Golden Boys do well. The list that I ran was pretty similar to my Beria open list. Um, there were a couple changes, but for the most part, it worked on the same premise of um, the Caladius castle sort of sitting back and being a, a clock that the enemy has to sort of fight through. Um, and the units of bikes kind of run forward and apply a bunch of pressure, you know, a bunch of board control, uh, pick up uh, units on objectives, their obsecs, so they'll grab objectives. Um, they're almost unchargeable because they protect each other. Uh, if you charge one, then I'll stooping dive with the other and, um, not much can survive four bikes on the charge when they fight first. Um, so it's a pretty solid list cause you kind of have to deal with the bikes. Um, if you don't, you lose the game. And while you're dealing with the bikes, the three Caladiuses are just like tearing your army apart. Uh, and at the end of the game, you won't have much that can deal with tanks. So that's, that's kind of how it works. In terms of MVP units, uh, my list is all incredibly consistent, and there's not many units in it. Um, but definitely this tournament, Constantine Valdor really pulled through. Uh, in game four against Gene Sealer Cult, um, I had Kingslayer, my opponent's Patriarch Warlord, uh, which was arguably a, a terrible mistake. Uh, but uh, he was hiding the Patriarch in the building like he should so that nothing could really get to him. Uh, all my bikes were dead, and it was just Constantine and the Caladiuses left. Uh, and Constantine charged into the building and murdered the Patriarch and everybody around him over two turns of combat. And it was just, you know, he, he did what he does. He, uh, he, uh, he's my only way into buildings, and uh, he, he tore him down. My top table match was with Jake Nelson. Uh, he's an amazing player, a great guy. I learn something new every time I play him. Unfortunately, it's always in the final round where one of us is getting kicked out of a good placing. He played a list with three Caladius and three tank commanders, which is just brutal. We had Precious Cargo on Spearhead with decent terrain, but not nearly enough to hide everything. I got extremely lucky and got first turn so I could whittle down his gun line early on. We had a pretty slow start to the game, though, uh, with some lackluster shooting. But uh, Jake by far had some much colder roles during this game than I did. There was no real turning point in our game since it was so close all the way through. We had secondaries perfectly maxed out by turn four or five. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes, but um, never failed to capitalize on each other for some reason. Uh, it came down to primaries with only two or three coven models touching a wavern and mulching some guardsmen and a fire prism sniping a single guardsman for the win. A one point win, actually. My top table game was against this really cool Eldar soup list. Uh, it, it played around dropping your leadership with debuffs um, and a couple psychic powers that could really just like tear you apart with mortal wounds. Um, but I went first and I was able to pick up like a hemlock and a fire prism every turn pretty consistently with the Caladius's. Uh, and he had to deal with the bikes. 
Um, one bike out of each unit survived his turn one, uh, and I auto passed one, and CP rerolled the leadership on the other one, and that was that was pretty much it. Um, it's pretty hard to deal with my bikes, even if just one of them makes it to you. Now you have to put a a lot of shooting into them. They're obsec. They got me bonus, uh, and then my castle's untouched. So turn three, I I still have three Cladius, and you have no tanks and no planes. So it's it was kind of a brutal matchup, um, but it was a really cool army. And that does it for our coverage on the GK Open. Uh, really big congratulations to Jonathan and Bridger for putting together a, a wonderful wonderful performance. And a, a big thanks to the event organizers. Um, as uh, Bridger mentioned, the event uh, did have a lot to do with uh, recognizing Jeff Robinson and everything he did for the community. Um, and a big shout out to Israel Sanchez, who actually won best overall uh, due to his gorgeously painted army. Let's cut to another bump. Tournament news. Scarry here from Scardcast, and you are listening to Stats Center. And now we fly to my birthplace, Haligonia, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Home of the world's best donairs, the world's best bird, that'd be this guy, and Gork's Grand Bash. Hosted at the Brewster's Bar and Grill, right next to the Dollarama, where you can get all the toy turtles you need for your Astro Militarum army. Gorks was a 29-player ITC event. We got in touch with Todd Wall, one of the event organizers, to get the lowdown. Gorks Grand Bash was held in Halifax, Nova Scotia. This was our first Grand Tournament event and had 29 players attend. The event was inspired by a pair of our local gamers' desire to have a Grand Tournament, Ben Pelgier and Brian Strongman. They both got the GT bug from attending the Mork event in April. I am very focused on growing the local community, so it was natural for me to become involved. I personally have 12 tables worth of terrain and mats, and that's still growing. Brian worked hard to develop an additional seven tables worth, so it was quite easy for us to stock the tables properly. The meta was heavily vehicle focused with a few lists that bucked the trends. We counted on the Morks core of gamers coming from New Brunswick, but also to Joseph from CTC. The event went great. Most of the players knew the game quite well, which freed me to spend time split between a couple new gamers and building more terrain. The only issue we had was a major list change that had to be done leading up to the event. There's always things to improve, and drawing out more of Halifax gamers is on the top of my list. To do that, I am setting up another two-day event for the end of November. Details still need to be firmed up on that. Todd was referring to the Morks Maritime Open that happened last May. It is really great to see Warhammer growing in all these smaller places. After two full days of just shy of 30 Maritimers sitting in a bar playing Warhammer, things of course got silly. Drinks flowed and the tournament would end up with Joe Medema's Eldar beating Nathan Chow to take the crown. You want to give it another go at reading a list for once, Val? Joe Medema, Gork's Grand Open. He was running an airwing detachment of Craftworld's Talk. What the? Three Crimson Hunter Exarchs with two star cannons each. And then he had a spearhead attachment. Okay. And it had an Archon and three Ravagers. And it was Cabal of the Black Heart. Well, I guess that's pretty cool. And then next we had a battalion detachment of Talk with an Autox Skyrunner uh, and a Farseer Skyrunner 
And then under the troops, he had uh, 10 Rangers and 9 Storm Guardians. Okay. And then Fast Attack, he had 8 Wind Riders with Scatter Lasers. Cool, cool. And Heavy Support, two of those lovely Night Spinners. And then finally, a Wave Serpent. All right. You know, it's a list. And I do believe uh, one thing was missed. He did also have a Warlock Skyrunner in the list. But, I mean, still, you know, it's, uh, once again, Eldar. Definitely something that I despise. Not too bad. I think both of these guys, I'm apologizing. You know, I'm an apologist for both of the Eldar lists we've seen today. Only three flyers showing restraint, not just all the flyers. I mean, not everyone was running Alan's list at uh, Slaughterfest. That's nice. No, or Brian Hunters. Or Brian Hunters. I know I've said before that I'm just not a big fan of the Night Fears. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, kudos to Joe for not sharking it too much uh, when he when he brought it over to that small maritime city. Exactly. Why don't we why don't we kick it over to Joe and see what he had to say? I had an absolutely amazing time at the Gorks Grand Bash. It was a fantastically run event and hosted at a great venue, which was Brewster's Bar and Grill in Bedford. Uh, the TOs were Todd Wall, Brian Strongman, and Ben Pelsner, and they did an absolutely amazing job of putting together a top-class two-day event uh, with a great selection of players from all across Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, Canada. So as a player in 8th edition, I've really shifted from using Orcs early on right into uh, Inari Eldar and did very well with them in the ITC 2018. So it was a pretty hard shift moving to the new FAQs and rules to using much more of a uh, streamlined Eldar or Eldari uh, mixed list. Uh, what ended up happening is uh, this list did perform well. There's certainly not optimized for many of the hard-hitting lists out there. Like it doesn't do well against a, um, a Nick Natavati GSC or a, a TJ Lanigan uh, Chaos list. But it is uh, have its uh, highlights. It definitely has its strengths uh, and a few weaknesses, which was fun. I definitely would have to say uh, the Night Spinners did well for me, taking out a lot of uh, you know the small units on objectives or even taking out vehicles that are T7 or less. And they even put off about 15 wounds on knights throughout uh, one of the match too. So my day one opponents uh, ended up going very well. Uh, it was definitely a slog through those first three matches, but they, in terms of overall uh, how the games went, they, they, they certainly tilted in my favor throughout the, uh, the overall match, and that wasn't a problem. Day two definitely had a different ring to it. You could tell that the, the two, game four and game five, you know, uh, game four being against an undefeated opponent as well, uh, and then game five being against a uh, uh, a three and one, uh, it, it was it was an uphill battle, and I had to work really hard for it. Uh, in essence, game one uh, or sorry, game four on day one, um, you know, saw a very tight uh, Gilliman gunline list with lots of dreads. You know, a lot of hard things to get through with uh, not a whole lot of strength eight, um, you know, firepower coming out of my list. So that was where I had to play the objectives and play the mission much harder than actually killing things, and that's why I chose secondaries that you know, much more focused on ground control and board control rather than killing. So the final match round five, day two, was against a great guy by the name of Nathan Chow. He's an absolutely brilliant person and uh, just a fantastic player. He, to his credit, hasn't been playing competitively for a long time, but he just has one of those minds and abilities to grasp, you know, read a full codex, memorize it, know it all. And, uh, you know, he just really understood the game much better than most players would after years of playing, even you know myself playing competitively for a while. He just was right up there despite his inexperience. Uh, you know, we played a very hard-hitting uh, um, Imperial Guard Brigade uh, with a lot of really neat tools that you know toolboxes that you wouldn't see at first glance when you look at the list. But I had a lot of fun. You know, he had a demolition truck in there, he had Elysian drop troops. You know, he had the typical tank commanders and all those things that hit hard. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that 
the overall game was fantastic and Nathan was an exceptional opponent, a lot easy to get along with, easy to talk to, uh, and it went really well. F finishing up on game five, I'd have to say the turning point was when uh, Nathan was starting to run back on the clock and I still had a lot of time and he chose to do a lot of things that um, essentially were not needed. They didn't really change the game state and that put him on his back foot for time. So I ended up clocking him on turn four, although I did have uh, a moderate lead anyway leading into that turn. It kind of let me go from like a, about a 25 point uh, to about a 37 point, being able to score those uh, last two turns um, uninhibited. Um, he had done quite a bit of damage to things that didn't matter either, which allowed me to kind of keep uh, board control, recon, uh, those types of things and score. Lastly, I'd just really like to thank you guys for taking up the game with the uh, 40k Stat Center, you know, really allowing us to check in on those uh, events every week and staying on top of the pulse. Uh, you know, I just had a fantastic time at Gorks Grand Bash uh, in this July, and of course their sister event, the Morks Grand Bash, is in New Brunswick, and it'll be hosted mid-May. And just a quick shout-out for them. And then, uh, of course, we have Warzone Montreal coming up in September, and then uh, our very own Canadian Tabletop Championship Gaming Convention, CTCGC, We'll be returning this May 1, 2, 3, 2020, and uh, we're expanding from 20 events to about 30, and we're hoping to break the 500-person mark for this gaming convention, so it's going to be a lot of ton of fun, and uh, you'll start seeing a lot of that coming out in the next uh, month or two as we ramp up our planning and development cycle. Cheers. Now, Joe was not the only undefeated player at Gorks. Yet again, a Necron player hit that beautiful T-whip and went 4-0-1. and one. This time, Brian Strongman came out with a very, very unique list. Melee Necrons. Overachieving Underachiever of the Week! So, I've been playing 40k for about uh, 20 years now. Started in 3rd, but didn't get into the competitive scene until about 7th edition, the, the Twilight Days. And then the ITC I jumped right into at the launch of 8th edition. So this is my 4th GT that I've played in. Um, my first GT with Necrons. And uh, the list kind of really uh, functions around Cutluck the World Killer, which is um, uh, a kind of an unknown model. Um, he has no official model, and the dynasty he hails from has no dynastic codes attributed to it. It's, it's a Forge World model. Um, so when you pick him up, you can use any dynastic code that you want. So since his ability is a 12-inch aura of being able to assault after you advance, Obviously, you're going to want to use some sort of close combat elements to get the, the most out of such powerful ability. Uh, but of course, it's keyed into the infantry and also those that share a dynasty. So right off the top, you're eliminating Treyarch Praetorians, Wraiths, Scarabs, and uh, a couple of the other Forge World beast models since they don't have the infantry keyword, even though they're, they're really awesome at being in close combat. Uh, so... Obviously, that, that leaves you with two choices, either Flayed Ones or Lich Guard. Flayed Ones, you're going to be looking for those big blobs of 20 to really kind of um, get the, the full benefit of your resurrection protocols. But uh, 20 Flayed Ones is close to 100 points more than the, say, 9 or 10 Lich Guard that I used. Um, and of course, the Lich Guard have extra toughness, a better save, they have an invulnerable save, and they actually have AP on their attacks. So at that point, it's it's pretty much a no-brainer what, what you're going to kind of lean towards. Uh, so, And of course, 
uh, Cutluck himself is 200 points, so you really, if you're going to go with him, you want to invest as much as you can in that whole close combat element. So, went for the three full blobs of Lich Guard, two Sword and Board, one Scythe. Scythe for dealing damage, Sword and Board, of course, for absorbing as much damage as they can and uh, the list pretty much functions around being able to get that high mobility everything's flying around the table ignoring terrain uh, capping objectives with the immortals engineers with the immortals because uh, really i don't need them to do anything i very rarely shoot with them maybe just take a couple pot shots here and there uh, but they're they're specifically designed just to kind of grab table quarters while the lich guard do their thing um, it is also a very kind of hero hammer centered list, so characters are, are pulling a lot of the heavy weight. Um, the overlords with their big scythes are there to take down vehicles. Um, you're, you're not able to screen that effectively, uh, and if you do screen, I do want the screen because this list kind of functions on not necessarily killing things in my turn, uh, so it kind of lowered my score a bit because I wasn't often getting kills in my turn maybe like 50% of the time, but I'm looking for the kills in the opponent's turn. So wrapping the opponent up in my turn uh, by not engaging them fully, not going for the, the kill on the unit, wrapping them, and then killing them in my opponent's turn. So um, basically preventing my opponent from shooting me as best I can through consolidations, pile-ins, you know, giving units the bad touch, all that kind of thing. Uh, so as far as the list MVP goes, it has to go to Cutluck, of course, because of his aura. <laughs> He's 200 points of not do anything other than stand 12 inches away from everything that I have on, on the table as best I can. Uh, and recur the, the uh, Traveler was absolutely critical too, giving the plus one attack aura when I needed it. But also being able to take over enemy vehicles and just kind of take pot shots at things that I, I can't actually engage with uh with this list um and then uh i guess of course the the lich guard uh, they do their their work by absorbing the enemy's gunfire and then uh as far as toughest matchup uh, any kind of matchup where I'm, I'm dealing with flat two damage or d3 damage is an absolute pain for me to deal with uh, three up involves aren't exactly what i'm known for uh making successes on <laughs> from uh, anyone that uh, i play on a regular basis uh they know that um they can they can pretty much true through the lich guard even with a three up involve but uh usually it, it, i only lose one so the the second one in a fair number of my games i i actually went through playing just off of uh, uh two units of lich guard instead of three because i'd always lose one on turn one uh, as far as um, game highlights, I'd say uh, it was um, my game five against a, a very, very good player. He he was playing um, an Eldari soup, so he had the Altok wing detachment, um, some Harlequins in there, and uh, lots of Venoms with uh, Dark Eldar Warriors. So uh, he was pretty much able to go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and, and do whatever he wanted. So... Uh, in that regard, we had we had very similar lists, very high mobility. Uh, so once he started asking some some key questions, and I explained to him what my list does pre-game, he basically castled his army up into a corner behind some some wood features, which of course means that if I was to charge them, it would deduct two inches from my charge. So he was really kind of castling up to prevent any kind of turn one shenanigans, and then not too worried about 
uh, capturing objectives, of course, because he could spring out, you know, 20 inches from, from his table corner there in every direction, grab objectives and things of that nature. So I went for a surprise on him, and instead of going for the turn one charge, because obviously it wouldn't benefit me in any way since everything flies and would just be able to escape, uh, I actually used the Veil of Darkness to teleport to the other side of the table with a big blob of uh, shield lich guard and seize the priority objective on turn one, which meant I had the lich guard in his deployment zone holding the bonus point and also allowing me to get hold more pretty much straight from turn one until about turn four, turn five. So uh, that that single play right there um, single-handedly won me the game. So uh, that was probably my, my favorite move where um, that's kind of the focus of this, of this list, not necessarily killing things, but uh, grabbing objectives and going for that board control. Um, the, the units, the assault units, are really there just to kind of get in the opponent's face and give them something to shoot at while I'm kind of running around being janky, cagey, and grabbing objectives. Let's hit that bump. Tournament news. Hey everybody, I'm Paul Murphy from Forge the Narrative, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. Our last event this week was an absolute mystery until Monday morning. Natefest 2 was an ETC practice GT held in the city of Lisburn, Northern Ireland. Hosted by the Lisburn Gaming Club, 38 players brawled it out under a shadow of obscurity. With the help of a number of fans of the show, we were able to find the TO and captain of Northern Ireland, Nathan Cooper on the dark web and get a lowdown on what happened, who won and what's next. Hi folks, my name is uh, Nathan Cooper and I am the TO of Natefest 2019. I'm also the current captain of the Northern Irish ETC team and we're really looking forward to going to Serbia to um, the ETC this year. Um, the event is named after yours truly, myself, and I have been running it now for this is the second year that um, we've been running this. Um, the event was hosted in Lisburn, uh, which is um, a small city outside um, Belfast, about 15 minutes down the road in Northern Ireland. Um, the club that hosted the event and supplied all the terrain is called Lisburn Gaming Club. Lisburn Gaming Club is the largest club on the island of Ireland and has the largest 40k scene among other popular board games and tabletop games. Because our scene is pretty small, unfortunately that automatically means that we have very small events in any time that we actually do have an event. Um, so we had to really push and create our own events in order to have them um, and, and then such narcissistic fashion i created one and named it after myself uh, so nate press 2019 uh, was an etc 20 nil format and we were playing five games over two days three games on the first day and two games on the second day we had a massive 38 players to join us in a great event which is an, a, an amazing record um for us in terms of uh events in Ireland uh, it's actually the biggest that we've ever had um, our scene is pretty small over here um, so this was a massive deal to see so many people in one place all competing for the prize because our scene is so small we're, we're, we're always behind the meta and we're always chasing it 
Arsene has in around sort of 50-ish active players in Northern Ireland, but only 10 to 12 would, would sort of classify themselves as actually being competitive players that would follow metas and, and create empty meta lists. Um, the, these people would be the same people that would even refer to themselves as ETC players. So the event was a pretty much a mixed bag with a whole range of abilities, interests and themes which we all enjoyed. And I certainly enjoyed running it and hosting it. It was an absolute pleasure for the second year. And at Lisburn Gaming Club, um, their committee was very supportive uh, of the event. Just to touch on the terrain on the event, again, the terrain um, was created by myself to sort of replicate um, IC, I, ITC and ETC sort of terrain. Lots of line of sight blocking, um, so people just didn't get blew off the table super early. The terrain was also supplied by Lisburn Gaming Club, and I really wanted to replicate the, the true ETC style format uh, regarding the preset tables. Um, so just regarding that, you would have extremely light tables with maybe one to three line of sight blocking pieces um, of terrain. You would have in around four medium with maybe five to eight uh, line of sight pieces uh, which block line of sight and then you would have you know the two heavy tables which would be extremely dense in terms of uh, ruins and the bottom floors block the line of sight there so um, it was a mixed bag every table was different um, but towards the top tables I really wanted to replicate that um, and we actually used the last year's ETC terrain, which we bought um, at uh, 2018 in Croatia and brought it home. So we put that really um, to use, especially in our practice games. In terms of things that I would do differently uh, for next year, um, I think the hall was a bit small, so we'll maybe look at a different venue because we're looking to expand. And there seems to be more and more interest every year with this event. Um, again, it's a massive umbrella of players we have in terms of player ability and skill, but there's still people who enjoy the fluff aspect and just an event in general to see everybody in one room. Um, Timing-wise, there were three-hour rounds. And I wouldn't change any, any of that or anything. Um, I think it, the majority... Of people had good time and there was no real negative feedback or criticisms a lot of it was positive so it's not bad for our first year and um, it's something that we can all be extremely proud of an interesting uh, thing that happened in the first round was 11 games out of 19 went 20 0 which was incredible i've never ever heard of that going on in any event which was it's quite unique to hear that um just to touch on our meta over here, um, the meta in this event, there was a lot of Imperial Knights backed up with Guard, actual Guard, um, which kind of made things easy as a TO um, because the games were quick and they were easy. And there was a lot of mirror matches in the first round, so it was Knights versus Knights, which was quite interesting because you know those games go very, very quickly. But Val and Peter, I would just want to thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to speak about our our event. Uh, there's going to be a eighth, uh, 2020 next year in a bigger venue with hopefully more people coming to it. Um, as I say, it's um, it's becoming a a, a very good um, 
place for our hobby to grow um, in our small country. But um, no, thank you very much for the opportunity for to just speak to you guys. Um, I know a lot of our guys love the show and love tuning in. Uh, there's just no show like it. So appreciate it very, very much, guys. And we wish you all the best. Thanks, night. See ya. Bye-bye. Now, the eventual winner of the event was Michael McConkie, a more Irish name I've never heard. Also the only Gene Steeler Colts player to show up. There's no coincidence there. I'm going to stumble through this Gene Steeler Colts list. Well, you know, Val, mm-hmm. if you're going to do it, you have to do it in that Irish accent or you can give it to me. Uh, no problem. Let me see if I can just queue up a little bit. of. Let's see here. Uh... Oh, lovely. Okay, so we got something going here. Now, now we can find a little bit of less reading here for us all. Michael McConkey, running a 5CP battalion detachment. Gene Steeler Colts. Anointed throng in the cult creed of the Bladed Cog. He was running an abominant, as well as an insid with the insidious mindworm and a primus. In the troop slot, he had acolyte hybrids numbering in 16 strong, with hand flamers and a leader. In the second troop slot, he had Brood Brothers infantry, and then finally another. 10-man unit of Brood Brothers Infantry. Under the elite section, he ran the ever-so-clever Aberrants in two eight-power big-wielding strong units backed up by a biophagus with the alchemist familiar, a Clamavus, and a Kaler Morph. In a battalion detachment also of Gene Steeler cults, this time a deliverance brood surge with the cult of the four-armed emperor, he had an acolyte Iconward leading the bunch along with a patriarch actually leading the bunch. And then he had three troops, of course, because it's a battalion, which I already said, and they had acolyte hybrids, a cult icon, and with heavy rock saws. We, we had a couple of heavy rock saws in there. I think only one, I think only one. Um, and uh, one larger unit, nope, they're all the same. Uh, they're just 10 man units with one rock saw each. And then actually, finally, we have the battalion detachment of Tyranids, Gene Steeler cults here. Again, the cult of the four-armed emperor. With a Magus, a Primus, and three Brood Brothers infantry squads, a Nexus, and good gravy, it's finally over. Val, you did amazing. I really congratulate you on uh, you know completely offending an entire country. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly one and a half. Yeah. Um, to be fair, those uh, rock saw units, uh, there were five rock saws in, uh, in each I, squad. I, was, but, I couldn't read and do that at the same time, much like most Irish. Um, if anyone's interested in seeing the list, uh, it is not posted to 40kstats.com because uh, we weren't able to get the full rundown of, of the event, uh, just the eventual winner. Um, if I do get that, I will upload them there. But you can always just uh, send a message to Val or myself or email me. Um, at the 40kstats.com messaging board, and uh, I can send it your way. Fantastic. Now, do you want to get some clips here from Michael on how this list played out? Absolutely. Now, I just want to say, he also described his accent as being more of a Liam Neeson accent, which is far too subtle for someone as ignorant as myself to pull off. Uh, So let's Mm. kick it over. Also far more terrifying. Yes. Uh, Mr. McConkie does have a very specific uh, set of skills, uh, which he'll now describe in great detail. So in terms of the actual list, it's a pretty standard double aberrant bomb gene stealer list uh, with acolyte rock saws backing it up. 
I suppose the one big change to most lists that would be out there, which would tend to be Twisted Helix or Cult, is the use of Bladed Cog as my Cult Creed um, for the Aberrant Detachment. That was done because I was expecting to see a lot of Imperial Knights, Admech uh, and other Knights um, about the place. And so I thought the stratagem for, I think it's called Overthrow the Oppressors, uh, for the Exploding Fives against Knights would be more useful than plus one strength on the Aberrants, which doesn't. In terms of MVP for the weekend, um, I suppose it's easy to say the Aberrants, the two Aberrant squads did a huge amount of heavy lifting for me, uh, probably more so than the Acolyte squads did, partially because of the resilience. They were able to drop, wipe out and um, take a punch back more than anything, more than the Acolyte squads could. Easy to say the aberrants, but probably more so the hypermorphs uh, in the squads. Whenever you start getting an extra attack from a biophagus, an extra attack from might from beyond, and you're all of a sudden swinging, um, you know, ten times with exploding sixes or exploding fives. If you're against Imperium, uh, at damage two, strength ten, it does a huge amount of work, especially against knights. Um, the two of them combined with an abominant buffing them, Primus buffing them, and you know a psychic power on them. Straight away, I was wiping a knight out with those two models alone, and the rest of the aberrant squad were just trying to wrap and trap. Although I do have to give a special shout out to the Nexus. I'd never used the Nexus in my lists before, never felt I needed CP regen, tended to be running brigades and battalions, had enough CPs. This specific list though is very CP dependent uh, with the various stratagems and combos. So I felt, especially given six CPs spent at the start of the game for field commander and vigilist attachments and relics, that I just needed some way of getting those two, three or four CPs back throughout the game. It's also fantastic for just leaving on a backfield objective because people just tend to ignore him. And he's just probably my toughest round was round four. It's up against Daniel, uh, who's on Team NI for ETC. He was running the Chaos Demons and Thousand Suns uh, mixed chaos lists with the sort of standard stuff, I suppose, Plague Bearers, Pink Horrors, and then the double Zangors and numerous buff characters and smite characters. Um, to me, on paper, it should be a loss most times for Gene Steeler cults against that. So much more board presence, uh, a lot more resilience than certainly the Gene Steelers can muster, um, and the Zangors can hit just as hard as anything. And really the game came down to about three or four 50-50 decisions that Daniel had to make um, all I could do was was put him in an awkward position and make him make a call I got fortunate that uh, he from my point of view I suppose made the calls that benefited me most um, part of that was just his inexperience of playing against Gene Steeders I, I know if we ever played again it would probably be a, a resounding thumping for me because uh, he wouldn't make the same mistakes. He would understand better how the army plays. Um, he's an absolutely cracking player and probably deserved to win the tournament, um, all bar just those little miscalculations that can really... At the top table game for round five is probably not too exciting, to be honest. It was up against Gareth, who's on Team Northern Ireland um, for ETC this year. He was running four nights and the Rusty 17. To be honest, the, the game, it, I should be winning it nine times out of ten. It's kind of bread and butter stuff for the Gene Steeler Colts. So Gareth, fantastic player, um, and played the game as best he could, but his list just can't cope with the Gene Steeders, uh, unfortunately. So my round five, relatively straightforward. And I suppose the only thing to say really is, um, I mean, having to hold my hands up, I should have lost round four against Daniel. Um, possibly should have also lost or at least drawn uh, my game two as well against Tom. 
and it came down a little bit to people not understanding what cult do they know in their heads how cult play but it's very different seeing them on the tabletop and when the the buff characters start getting into range and everything comes off and the stratagems are played um, they can just eliminate anything in the game that's standing against them and I think that's it's different seeing that on the tabletop to having it in your head and theory crafting against it and I think it just catches some guys out cold. Well congratulations Michael on the big victory in that ETC test event. Hopefully next time you guys run a show um, you'll tell everybody about it instead of keeping it in hidden in the dark web and we don't have to have some random fan ask us why we aren't covering it. Ah, why don't you boys just pick up a copy of the BCP and organize your tournaments that way? Well, that does it for this week's show. Val, do you have anything to add? You know, I, I kind of like it, you know, when when I don't even have to host. You're just sort of running the whole operation yourself now, um, and I'm just here making stupid voices. I, th- I think this show is maybe our best one to date. Well, hopefully you don't forget to cut out uh, some of our mistakes, and um, maybe... Just maybe this will be mm. the one that puts us over the edge. That's it. 1,000 views. <laughs> well, that's all I've got. Val, do you have anything last to say? Bye-bye. This has been 40K Stat Center, a presentation of the Frontline Gaming Podcast Network. Like what we do? Subscribe to and rate us on YouTube and wherever podcasts can be found. Join the conversation. Follow 40K Stat Center on Facebook. You can also support the show directly by joining the Chapter Tactics Patreon and competitive 40K in general via the ITC Patreon or by grabbing a subscription to BCP. BCP.